The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. Would you take your Bible, please, and look to the Old Testament book of Joshua, Joshua 24 this morning. We'll turn our attention there in just a moment. Joshua chapter 24. Every day is filled with choices. And those choices range from the small to the significant, from the trivial to the transformative. Uh, Quite honestly, we are faced daily with a relentless challenge to choose. In fact, sociologists have identified that in our culture today, particularly in the American culture, we're experiencing what's referred to as choice overload. Choice overload occurs when there are too many options and those those multiple options lead to stress and indecision and dissatisfaction ultimately with the final choice because of FOMO, the fear of missing out. I, I made the wrong choice and because I made the wrong choice, I missed out as a result of the wrong decision. Just consider how things have changed in our culture in the last 10, 15 years. In fact, 20 years ago, when you went to the supermarket, the average supermarket had 7,000 items to choose from in the grocery store. But visit Walmart, Target, Publix, Winn-Dixie, visit those today and you're gonna find that they have on average 50,000 or more items to choose from. Did you realize there are 27 different varieties of Crest toothpaste? 35 kinds of Oreos, and by the way, the best is double stuffed. Can I have an amen? Go to the average restaurant and they bring you the menu and the menu has over 150 items on average. It's true, we're experiencing choice overload. But choice overload is nothing new. Around 3,300 years ago, the Israelites encountered a pivotal moment. They had been in the promised land and they now find themselves, after they've settled into the land, that they've blended the worship of false gods with the worship of the true God, Jehovah. For your reference, when you study the Bible, you're going to find that there are 51 named false gods, from Adar to Zoheleth. All of those gods were were evident in the lives of the Israelites. In fact, archaeologists have discovered around the city of Jerusalem and then expanding outward thousands of icons and trinkets and figurines of false gods that these people would put in their homes and make little shrines or carry in their pockets in hopes of good favor. And as time moves on, as they've settled into the land, it becomes more prevalent for them to to follow the false gods. And now Joshua, at the end of his leadership, really coming to the end of his life, he convenes all of the tribes of the nation of Israel to the city of Shechem. And there presents a challenge to deal with the choice overload of false gods. Let's read what he says in Joshua 24 and verse number 14. He says, now therefore fear the Lord, 
and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve whether the gods of which were your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. With that challenge, he begins to remind them from the flood to the Amorites, the pantheon of false gods the Amorites worshiped. The Israelites had a choice to make. It was the multiple choices of false gods or the choice of serving the one true God. Now, for you and me, as we study Scripture, we would say, well, there's no other choice. We would serve the one true God. After all, these people had seen the miraculous victory at Jericho. They'd experienced the supernatural wonder of the sun standing still and the moon standing still. They, they've culminated in entering into a land that, that God had given to them. But in spite of the divine intervention and triumphs that they had experienced, they faltered in their faithfulness to the very God who granted them those victories. And now Joshua comes and he, he presses the people to make a choice. And he says, either serve the Lord or serve the false gods, but don't waffle, don't vacillate, don't be double-minded. Choose you this day who you will serve. There are three steps that Joshua uses to help the Israelites come to the decision to make the right choice. They're helpful for us to notice as well as we stand in the place of decision. Here's the first step. The first step is this, review, learn from the past. Learn from the past. Review what God has already done. When you read chapter 24, you're going to find that, that, that Joshua, in less than 300 words, recounts 500 years of history of the people of Israel. He begins with Abraham and moves to Isaac in verses 2 and 3. And then he shares the story of Moses and the passage through the Red Sea, verses 5 through 7. And then he recounts the, the contemporary battles for the promised land in verses 8 through 11. And in that review, he has two main points. The first point is this. Remember the, the mysterious preparation of God. Look at what it says in verse number 12. After he's recounted all the history, he says in verse number 12, and I sent the hornet before you. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, it has to be given in the context of verse number 11. He says, and you went over. Verses 10 and previous was the, the last generations, those that have passed on. There may be a few that are left, but the majority are those that actually went over in the land. But you went over into Jordan and came into Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Termites, and the Jebusites. All of these ites were fighting. But he said, the reason that you won was not because of your might or your strength. He says in verse 2, I prepared the way, I sent the hornet before you. You went over, but I went before you. Now, what in the world is the hornet? Well, what's he referring to when he says, I sent the hornet before you? Write in your Bible this reference. It's the, it's the reference to the same thing in Exodus 23, verses 27 and 28. The Lord told them that I will send the hornets before you. It's recorded again in Deuteronomy 7, verse number 20. Moreover, the Lord thy God will send the hornet among them. God was preparing the way for the children of Israel to take the land by what he was doing, preparing the, the enemy ground. Some scholars believe that 
that the hornet obviously was a, was a literal insect, but perhaps it was infected with some type of disease, maybe leprosy or such. And as a result, when, when the individuals were stung in those cities, they received leprosy as well or some other infectious disease. It's not unusual for that to happen. The History Channel, a number of years ago, 2019, did a documentary entitled The Bugs of War. It's fascinating. The subtitle of it was this, how insects have been weaponized down through or throughout history. From all the way back to the Phoenician period, to then, even, even in the Roman period, in the second century, Septimus Severus conquered the city of Hatra by, by flinging scorpions over the walls of the city and the people were stung and they would give up. Even as more, more recently during World War II, the Japanese would, would drop fleas on Chinese cities that were infected with disease. The Viet Cong used the same methodology in the Vietnam War as well. And this was, was effective. We don't, know, we don't know how God did it, but we, we know why God did it. The, the why was this, that he was preparing the way for the people to take the land. And it was effective because verse 12 says, I, I sent the hornet before you, which drave them out before you, and even the two kings of the Amorites, not with thy sword or with thy bow. He said, this, this was not anything you had done. I prepared the way for you. And the mysterious preparation of God resulted in the miraculous provision of God. He says in verse number 13, I've given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you built not and, and you dwell in them and of vineyards and oliveyards uh, that you planted not, but you do eat. He said, you are where you are, not because of your ability, your might or what you have done. It is because I prepared the way. And learn this lesson, students. God's preparation and provision go hand in hand. All he asks you to do is step out and, and go over, but trust that he will go before you, that he will prepare the way and he will do what is necessary. Even in the recent history of the, the, the nation of Israel, God went before them. Do you realize when Israel was established in 1948, uh, it was in the fulfillment of prophecy. Ezekiel 36 verse 24 said that they would gather all of the peoples together out of countries after World War II. It was necessary that that, that, that occur. And all of the, the, the people from World War II, all of those Jews that were, that were victims of concentration camps and the, uh, and the oppression of the, of the Nazi state, they, they began to gather back to the nation. And, and God allowed them to establish the nation of Israel on May the 14th, 1948. And the very next day, they were, they were attacked by four surrounding nations. But most people don't realize that as soon as they were attacked, they didn't have an army. Israel didn't have an army. They had what they referred to as the Haganah, which was more of a peacekeeping force. They didn't have the Israeli Defense Force. The Israeli Defense Force was not organized until 11 days after they were attacked by their surrounding countries. And God in his, in his wisdom showed them, even in that moment, that what I say I will do, I will complete, not by your power, but by my power. If you go to Israel, you can visit the Haganah Museum and it tells the story of, of the war of, uh, that led up to the, the, the final consummation of the establishment of the state of Israel. Ben-Gurion was the prime minister at the time. And, and when they were attacked the very next day after their declaration of independence, he, he said, the, the prophet Isaiah said, there'll come a day when we will build our, uh, beat our swords into plowshares, but the Messiah hasn't come, so let's beat our plowshares into swords. And they sent out the word that every person who was a farmer 
farmer or a gardener on a kibbutz, they were to take their gardening implements and their tools and make them look like they were, they, they were, they were rifles so that the enemy, when they came, they would think that they would be able, uh, they would not be able to take them. They, they determined that, that if, they, if they couldn't do it, if they couldn't fight the war, they would look like they were going to uh, be able to fight the war. In fact, uh, when you go to the Haganah Museum, they found out that the Israelis in the southern part of the Negev Desert, they would take their crop duster planes and they would take seltzer bottles and, and they, would, they would shake them up and they would drop them out of the planes and they would whistle like a bomb coming to the ground and the glass would explode under great pressure. And the enemy thought that they had tremendous bombs and they were frightened and would move back just in the, just in the impact of those seltzer bombs. It was really the beginning of the fake it till you make it ideology. Just do the best you can with what you got until you can get organized to deal with what you need. They developed what was referred to as the Davidka. It's a mortar shell. Quite honestly, those mortars were, were never accurate. They never hit their target, but they were extremely loud. And when they, were, when, when they exploded, the, the, the reverberation of that, of that sound would stun those people that were nearby. But here's, here's what I found so interesting when you visit the Haganah Museum. They conscripted the beekeepers to help in those days prior to the armies being organized. You know, Israel is the land of milk and honey. And where there's honey, there's bees. And they determined that they were going to protect the, the holy mount that, that, that was so important to them. When the enemy would come in, they determined that they would take those beehives and, and they would throw them at the enemy and they would be angry and mad. And those bees would begin to attack the, the, the enemy that was trying to take that land in those closed quarters, uh, those underground tunnels leading to uh, the land, the holy mount that was there. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying this. It's a biblical principle that God often works through the trivial to prepare the way for triumph. And God is doing small things in your life right now that you don't even realize are important. But he's preparing the way for you. Writing your notes, Zechariah 4 verse number 10, it reminds us to not despise the day of small things. God's using those small things to prepare you for the provision that he has. I can testify to that. My wife and I, when we were married in 1993, two weeks before we were married, we had no job, had no place to go. But two weeks before, God opened the door for us to move to Anchorage, Alaska. So two weeks before I agreed to go, we were married on July 31st, 1993. Two weeks later, after we were married, we were in Anchorage, Alaska. And when we went there, I went as an assistant pastor and I made $225 a week. I look back on that and I don't understand how in the world did we make it back then? $225 a week. That was $5.63 per hour. I, I know how we made it. We, we scrimped, we saved, we did what we had to. When we, went to. when we went to Anchorage, the second Burger King in the state of Alaska was opened in the city of Anchorage and it was just up from our little apartment. And to celebrate that second Burger King, they decided that for the entire year of 1993, they were going to sell Whopper burgers for 93 cents. I, I, as you can tell, I enjoy fast food. When I went there, I weighed 160 pounds. By the time I left, I was over 200 and none of your business. But God, in his timing, prepared what we... Listen, my wife and I, we were just talking about this the other day. We look back on that. That was some of the sweetest times of our life. I remember in those days... 
Gary Smalley said something about the fact that when you get married, after you get married, you put a little weight on, that means you're happy. I told my wife, I must have been ecstatic if that was the case. But I look back on it and I see that where God guides, he truly provides. He prepares the way. He does what's necessary to give you what's needed. So how do you make the right choice? Step one, just review the past and see what God has done mysteriously and miraculously and know that he will do it again. Number two, resolve to serve the Lord. Notice what Joshua says here. He moves from chronicling the past to the challenge of the present and he resolves to serve the Lord, number one, presently. Look at verse 14. The very first word is the word now. Verses 1 through 13 is all about the past, but now he pivots to the present and he says, serve the Lord now. Verse 15, he says, choose you this day. It's not a choice you made yesterday, not a choice you'll make tomorrow. Choose you this day. And quite honestly, it's a choice we make every day. I choose to serve the Lord. Young people, you can't live on yesterday's victories. You can't live on your parents' choices. You must choose to serve the Lord presently now. Not only does he say choose presently, he says choose purposefully. Look again at verse 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served in the other, at the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve you the Lord. He says in purpose, choose to, uh, to have reverence, fear the Lord. Choose to have service, serve the Lord. Choose to be obedient. Put away those, those, those other gods in your life. And then he says not only must you choose to serve presently and purposefully, he says, you've got to choose personally. He says in verse number 15, and that very last statement that he makes, but as for me and my house, you choose what you're going to do, but as for me and, and my house, we will serve the Lord. Learn this lesson this morning that you can't make the choice for somebody else. You only make it for yourself and your family. Me and my house will choose the Lord. You say, Dr. Lance, why, why is personal choice so important? May I submit to you, here's the reason why. It's a biblical principle. Your choices can develop or destroy you, but either way, they'll define you. Your choices can develop or destroy you, but either way, they'll define you. I ask you this question. How many of you know the story of the 12 spies that went over to look at the promised land. Moses uh, sent out those 12 spies. But here, here's my ultimate question with that story. You know that 10 came back negative, naysaying, no, we can't take the land. It's, it's filled with giants. We're grasshoppers in their sight. We can't do it. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you know a name of one of those 10? If you really want to know, you can go to Numbers chapter 13, and it lists out those, the, the entire 12 of those, uh, of those spies. One's name is Shemua. I would remember that name if, if it was important. One guy's name is Shaphat. I read that the first time I thought it was Snapchat. I didn't think that that was the same. Nabi, Amia, all of these. Here's the point. Those 10 made the choice. And the choice ultimately destroyed them and defined them. And they're marginalized in the canon of Scripture. But there were two, two of those spies who said, listen, God can do it. Yeah, they may be giants, but our God's greater. There may be battles ahead, but our God's the general. 
He'll prepare the way. He will get us there. And you know who those two are? One was Caleb and the other was Joshua. Learn this, this principle today. Your choices can develop or destroy you. But either way, they define you. How do you make the right choice? Well, step one, you review, learn from the past. Step two, resolve to serve the Lord. But here's the third step, record, confirm your decision. After he's issued the challenge and said, right now today, you choose who you will serve. He begins a conversation with the congregation. Verse 16, they answer back and they say, God forbid that we forsake the Lord and we serve other gods. And and that wasn't sufficient for Joshua. He, He went back again and he challenged them again. Listen, you can't continue serving both God and the, and the false gods. And finally they come to verse number 25. And they make this, verse number 24, and they make the statement, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. Verse number 24 is in direct correlation to verse number 14. The very things that Joshua said initially, serve God with reverence, the Lord God. Serve God with service, the Lord God we will serve. Serve God with obedience, And his voice we will obey. Those three elements were finally evident in the conversation. And verse 25, the Bible says that then Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. And he set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Now notice what he does here when he makes this covenant. The covenant is confirmed in two ways. Number one, it's confirmed in manuscript. The Bible says in verse number 26, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. The very agreement, the terms of the agreement in verse number 25, the covenant with the statute and ordinance. The statute and the ordinance are the terms of the agreement, the covenant. The statute is the prescription. This is what you must do. The ordinance is the prohibition. This is what you must not do. He wrote that covenant and the Bible says that he included it in the book of the law. By verse number 27, write this reference, Joshua 1 verse number 8, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth and thou shalt meditate therein day and night. He's referring to the law of Moses. It's that law that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And now this is such a consequential covenant that is being made. It's being included with the book of the law, the words of Moses being placed in the Ark of the Covenant. It was a recorded covenant that they would be held accountable to. Now, you and I don't have the Ark of the Covenant. We don't have the, the literal words of Moses that we can, we can write with that. But we make decisions every day. And here's the challenge and the principle that we learn from this is that when we do make those de- decisions, we must record them. We must canonize them somewhere. For me, I, I have in the back of my Bible some pages that I just have written down some decisions. I've written down the day that I got saved. And I go back to that and I say, I know that day I placed my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have in my Bible the date that I settled that matter. There, there were struggles of doubts in my life. And I remember I was at a, at a camp meeting one time and, I, and I, was, I was faced with a message that brought me the reality that I fully placed my trust in him. And I settled it on that day. I settled my calling in life. I I have that written down. All of those things down through the years. And some of you are making decisions today and those decisions are consequential and they're important and you are making a covenant with God and it requires that you be able to go back and say, I made that decision already. It's done. It's complete. 
So I challenge you, the decisions that you make, write them down somewhere, maybe the back of your Bible, in your journal, but write down what God is telling you to do and you say calling you to do. So the, the, the covenant was confirmed, first of all, with manuscript, but number two, the covenant was confirmed with memorial. The Bible says in verse number 26, and Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. That's the manuscript. Here's the memorial. And he took a great stone and he set it up under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. He set up a stone. It's a masbah. That's the Hebrew term. It's a standing stone. It was a place of significance. You know, in America, we drive down the highway and we see historical markers. Abraham Lincoln slept here. George Washington did this here. We see all of these markers. This was a historical marker, the memorial that said something of significance happened at this spot. And Joshua, when he had this conversation, was intentional in bringing the people to Shechem. Because Shechem was holy ground. First of all, Shechem was one of, the, one of the, the six cities of refuge. Joshua 20 verse 8 mentions that. The book of, uh, of Numbers mentions that. And the city of refuge would be a place where a person who was guilty of manslaughter had taken someone's life, not intentionally, innocently had taken someone's life. They could go to that city of refuge and they would be kept from the, from the judgment that would fall upon them for taking a life. It's a reminder that there is always grace for the guilty in the refuge of Jesus Christ. But it even goes deeper than that historically. When you look at verse number 26, it says there was an oak that was there in the city of Shechem. In your Bible, write by verse number 26, this reference, Genesis 35, verse number four. For it was there that Jacob, whenever he made the decision to go back to Bethel, he said, before we go back to Bethel, we've got to get our house right. Our house is filled with false idols and false gods. And he said, everyone in the household, bring every god that you have, every trinket and every icon and every figurine, bring all of those false gods and we're going to bury them under the oak in Shechem. It was interesting. We know now that there at that very place, it was the temple of Balbareth, a false god. And there at that temple, it became a sanctuary of grace and repentance for Jacob. And now, the standing stone of Joshua, it's still there. I saw it in June. Still there. It's in the middle of the West Bank. But it's still there in the fact that that standing stone is a reminder that God is able to take the enemy's ground for his glory and decisions can still be made on the fact that God is greater than any other God when we place our trust in him. Here, here's the principle I want you to learn. Old altars of repentance are the best foundation for new decisions. Old altars of repentance are the best foundation for new decisions. Some of you are making decisions today and you don't know what to do. May I remind you, go back to Shechem. What have you already decided? What's already concluded in your life? There's no other God before the one true God. What's already been set aside? And by the way, that Shechem, where the temple of Belbereth was, the false God, God was able to take that and make it a sanctuary. Did you see it? He referred to it as a sanctuary of the Lord. What are the sanctuaries where God has worked in your life and he showed you that you must make this decision and a building upon that decision, you make the, you make the next step. It requires manuscript. 
write down those decisions. It requires memorial, placing a standing stone. In Cairo, Egypt, there's a nondescript grave that has the remains of a 25-year-old American by the name of William Borden. As the heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, he was already a millionaire. When he graduated from high school, his parents gave him the gift of a trip around the world. And the young man traveled with a companion to Asia and the Middle East and Europe. And while traveling as a Christian, he began to feel a burden for the world's hurting and unbelieving. Finally, Borden wrote home at the end of his journey to his parents and he said, as I go off to college, I'm going to give my life to prepare for a life of service on the mission field. And when he did that, as he sent the letter off, he took out his Bible and he wrote in the back of his Bible two words, no reserves. He knew that his parents would, would probably hold back the millions of dollars that he was an heir because they didn't understand his decision to, to go to the mission field. But, but Borden had no reserves, and that's exactly what he did. He held nothing back. He went to college at Yale University, and he became a pillar in the Christian community at Yale University. While there, he wrote in his personal journal what defined his source of spiritual strength. He wrote these words, say no to self. And yes to Jesus every time. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started a small prayer group that would transform the campus life of Yale University. That little group gave birth to a movement that spread across the campus. By the end of the first year, 150 freshmen were meeting weekly for Bible study and prayer. And by the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of the 1,300 students at Yale University were meeting in such groups. Borden and those, those, those early members of those prayer groups strategized with fellow Christians to make sure that every student on campus would hear the gospel. And once the gospel was given on campus, they went out into the city of New Haven. And, the, and in fact, you could often find William Borden with the downtrodden on the streets of New Haven sharing the gospel. It was in that time that God made very clear his call to the mission field, but not only the mission field, but to the people of the Kansu there in China. These are the Muslims in the western part of China, and Borden knew that was where God called him. Upon graduation from Yale, he was receiving business offers from, from corporations and companies that were lucrative, but, but, but Borden turned down every single one of them. He made the determination, God called me to the mission field, and then he took out his Bible, and under the, the, the words, no reserves, he wrote the words, no retreats. After graduating from Yale University, he immediately went to Egypt to begin to learn Arabic for his intent to work with the Muslims of China. And while in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a month, the 25-year-old William Borden was dead. But prior to his death, he had written two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves, and no retreats, he wrote the words, no regrets. Young people, I challenge you. That a life that is filled with the right choices is a life that is well lived, no matter how long or short it may be. Because a life that is lived for Christ is a life of no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. Choose you this day whom you will serve. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. 
Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.